everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Armita Fear. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Rockus. In this episode, I speak with Rebecca Kirsch, founder and CEO of Tang App a remittance and payments company that helps overseas Filipino workers, or OFWs, in the U.S. send money to the Philippines. Rebecca grew up in the U.S. and the Netherlands, spent many summers visiting her family in the Philippines, and has studied and lived all over the world. Rebecca started her career in management consulting, the same one as me, actually, and we crossed paths again when we were both doing our master's at Harvard. Rebecca started Tang App in 2020 to help OFWs send money back to their loved ones in the Philippines, and has grown into the payment space since. TangApp is currently raising a seed round, and I'm happy to share that my women-focused angel investing syndicate is one of the participants. You can learn more about TangApp by visiting tangapp.org, and you can learn more about Fintiquette by shooting an email to at gmail.com. And now a word from our sponsors. everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with The Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what The Green Room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Rebecca, welcome to the green room. Thanks so much, Amrita. It's really nice to be here with you. Awesome. So Rebecca, let's start at the beginning. Who is Rebecca Kirsch? (laughs) You're, You're half Dutch, half Filipino, right? Can you tell us about how both of these cultures really influence you growing up in, in different parts of the world? Yeah, this is a really fun question because I am obviously often asked about my background, but not in how it influenced and how it how it made me who I am today. So indeed, I'm Dutch and Filipina. So I was born and raised in the Netherlands. Mum is Filipina. My father is Dutch Indonesian. And I mostly grew up in the Netherlands, but we did indeed go home to the Philippines quite often. It also feels very much like home. And those two cultures are quite different. <laughs> like the Dutch are known to be, you know, very direct, very structured, rational, reason-driven. Filipino culture is very much more on the, I would say, you know, warm, hospitality-wise. To just give one very random example, I still remember um, as a kid, I, I was going to go over to a friend's home and stay over for dinner in the Netherlands. Very typical, normal Dutch family. And this friend at school had also told when my mom came to pick me up that, oh, we're, you could probably also stay for dinner. So that's what my mom was expecting. He went home with this friend. And then their parents had said, well, 
no, because we didn't plan for this. We only have four hamburgers for our family. So like there's, it's not going to work out. We didn't plan it in advance. So I went home for dinner and my mother was like, what are you doing here? I thought you were staying for dinner. And, I mean, as a really little kid, I just didn't understand. I was like, they didn't have enough food. <laughs> so, and my mother just kind of was in shock, right? Because in the Philippines, the Filipino culture is like, it doesn't matter. There's always more than enough food. There's always more people. And there's nothing wrong with either example, but it's just, just to give a little anecdote on the contrasting cultures uh, and one tiny example. And so I do very much have, I love the Dutch directness. I tend to be very open and honest and direct. I think it's the most efficient way. I love efficiency. I'm very impatient. And so I think both of those have really like influenced who I am today. Could also mean that to some people, I'm, maybe I just look you know, really lost at times because there's such conflicting influences. And yeah, it was largely being part of, you know, an immigrant family, but also the strong ties to Filipino culture and Asian culture that let me just start tying out. But yeah, can also, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah, we definitely will. And I think a lot of those themes kind of like the difference in culture uh, definitely resonates with me as like, you know, my family's Indian American immigrants, definitely seen, seen a lot of that. But let's let's talk back about you, Rebecca. So you bounced around a lot geographically, but I think you graduated high school in the U.S. Um, yeah. And then you decided to pursue your undergrad and masters, multiple masters, kind of all over the place in in the Netherlands and Australia. What was your thinking behind you know going across the world again? So it's probably because I just didn't know what I wanted to do, <laughs> mostly because I was lost. So I think. I, just to, to recap, indeed, I did high school outside of Washington, D.C. in the U.S. And then I took a gap year and I went back to the Netherlands for uni. So I studied at the Pew University in Amsterdam and I did an international business administration bachelor of science degree. And then after that, took another year off, I worked for a nonprofit. And then I went into my two masters that were based out of the Rotterdam School of Management, National Rasmus University. These were also in international management Sam's and corporate finance. And then that included an exchange to Australia. So that was actually the start of this degree. So I was there for about six months. And then indeed, in between that work, and after that worked for the United Nations in New York, then went into strategy consulting in Amsterdam again, and then did my master's at Harvard, where I was very lucky to meet you. So it sounds, you know, when people hear three masters, they think it's impressive. It's really just because I, I think it took a lot of time for me to really figure out and find out what I really am happy to do, but also confident to jump into that. So indeed bounce around a lot, always done this dance between business degrees and then being very interested in social impact or public service. And the master's in public administration at the Harvard Kennedy School, I think, almost really brought all that together where I was leaving consulting and then thought this is a fantastic moment for me to re reevaluate and reflect on what, what does that actually mean that I, I do really care about working in some kind of a, an organization generally actually for profit, but can it have social impact and what does that mean? And so specifically on the problem I cared about, which was financial exclusion and, you know, the fact that it's very expensive to be poor, like for most of the world, actually. And what that means in like being excluded from financial systems, I, I really found that intriguing, particularly for the Philippines and Filipinos abroad. So jumped into that and then couldn't actually find someone that I thought was solving the problem best. And so I decided to start tying up myself. 
Yeah, that's great, Rebecca. Let's back up a little bit through your career because I think um, I want to just pull out a couple of strings there. You did say, I mean, you've obviously done like amazing work in all parts of the world <laughs> at this point, it feels like. But one of the places I think where we first overlapped was in management consulting. We were part of the same firm at Boozing Company back before it was acquired by PwC. And it's very sad that we didn't know each other then. But I do, I think a lot of people having that management consulting experience, being able to work on a bunch of different projects and kind of develop that like problem solving and analytical skill set while also being able to like pull things together, synthesize things strategically is, at least for me, it was extremely formative. So maybe just quickly talking about your time in consulting, can you talk about maybe one or two experiences or projects from your consulting days that really had like an impression on you? Yeah, so I really enjoyed my consulting time. I think that when I went into it, we've talked about this, that I thought, okay, I'll do this because like I said, I've always been very interested in really social impact work, but I realized I needed a little bit more skills and I had a lot more to learn and to grow. And so I thought consulting is the best way to do that, right? It'll be like an intense boot camp on, you know, lots of analytical skills, client skills, everything. And so I thought I'll do that for six months and then naturally they'll, they'll fire me because <laughs> they'll realize I'm a massive mishire. That didn't happen. I ended up staying a little bit longer than I expected, but probably one of my favorite project was we were working with a team in Japan who had a client that was a like DJ equipment manufacturer and they had no information or understanding of the European market for this client. So it was a potential acquisition. And so they just needed a lot more market research and understanding. And so we were tasked with being based in Amsterdam that we had to do more research on this DJing equipment stuff, which basically meant we have to interview DJs or like go into shops that sell them and ask them questions. And so it also brought me to Paris because I was one of the few team members in the Amsterdam office that also speaks French. So we went to Paris, like running around random DJ shops, interviewing people about DJ equipment. And then, but then like, diving back out from that and having to do the synthesis and be like, okay, what do we actually share with Japan, right? Like, what are the main findings? Like, we're the ones on the ground. There's no point in sharing all these interview transcripts. But, and so I think that was one of the moments where I also really, really, really fell in love with the idea of, oh my word, there, there are jobs out there where you can do this, like be very close to what's happening out in the real world with customers and products, but also that it really matters that you're the one to to answer the so what like great you did all this work and like what does it mean and think more on a higher strategic level and so i think that was one of the the really fun ones where i just never expected to be talking to djs in paris when i signed up to be a consultant with my hilarious french because i lived with a french family when i was about 15 years old for three months so my French is decent. I'm, I'm, you know, comfortable, fluent, and conversational, but it is very much teenager street level. That's what you need for <laughs> all the DJ shops, right? Exactly, exactly. So I think it was like really funny that people started to open up because I was just really shocked. And, and I realized like a lot of the slang that I know is like their day-to-day conversation. I also remember it was a bit tricky to like be able to talk to DJs because we were just like, great, 9 a.m., let's get going they live a very different life. <laughs> so some of these chats were like late at night in like very weird cafes or so it was, uh, no, it was very, really, really fun. And I think that that actually honestly really introduced me into 
the concept of if you're facing a problem or you want to understand a market or a sector to kind of do whatever it takes, like go out and talk to whomever, no matter how weird or strange. And naturally consulting is a little bit of a comfy bubble. Like we obviously have budgets and we have expenses for it. But I do think that was the first introduction into like, no, you should never just limit yourself to sitting in an office somewhere and working behind a computer. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Learning how to hustle from the DJs of Paris. I think that's great. I'm sure you had really interesting projects as well in, in being based in Houston. That basically means they were all oil and gas. Um, that's a story <laughs> for another day. Um, yeah. <laughs> but let's, I, I want to talk about your journey to Fountang, actually. Uh, you said this a little bit before, you know, you've done this like really nice dance between the business world and the social impact world. And, you know, we were at the Harvard Kennedy School together where you got your master's in public policy. And, you know, I think um, you obviously have many masters, but people who get policy degrees tend to take many paths. But I'm not sure how many of them, like, become entrepreneurs. And there are many ways of bridging the gap between, you know, business and impact or public and private sectors. Like, there are many ways of doing that. But you chose to become an entrepreneur and start your own business. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you decided that that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, that you saw this problem and that you had to solve it yourself? Yeah, I think in going to the Kennedy School, I really said, okay, this is a two-year degree. It is mainly focused on public policy, public administration, right? And, and you're right. It, it, there's a lot of things people can do from that. But I would say there's a lot of focus on policy roles. Can still be in tech or other companies, but you know, policy or compliance or regulatory driven. There's also a lot of public servants. So we have a lot of politician friends who do very impressive work that I could never do. And I remember going into the Kennedy School and thinking, okay, so it's a two-year program. And I had sort of, I love to talk, <laughs> maybe you noticed. And so I sort of thought something around communications and I've never properly explored that. So the first semester there, I thought I'm going to go, I'm going to jump into like writing communications and there were these very cool classes on like feature writing, right? And op-ed writing and people actually would get stuff published in the, in the Boston Globe at the end of that class. And so I was like, wow, I just didn't really think about that whole writing and communications world. So I took everything related to that. I took also speech writing by one of Obama's former speech writers, super inspiring, still probably one of my favorite professors in classes to this day. And at the end of it, I just sort of realized come December, at the end of the first semester, that I'm a, an extremely shitty writer. And this just wasn't going to be me. And it wasn't so much that I think I can't be creative or I don't write decently or I can put a sentence together on paper. I can do that. But I'm just not a diligent editor. And I learned that actually writing anything or communications anything is is like 95% research and editing and going back over it over and over and over and over again. And so I think I remember also when I got to that realization and over the, the holiday in December, telling my husband that I was like, I don't know if this is for me. And he goes, no, I thought that was a hilarious idea. Not because I'm bad at it, but he was just like, you're just not meant to sit in a room and just like write on your laptop or, you know, even be among the communications team for some politician. I just don't see you doing that. I think there are many other things that would much more suit your skill set and talent. So then I, I spent that holiday really sort of reflecting and I was very grateful that I got that chance, right? Like, I mean, I had three more semesters left and so communications and writing was not going to be it. And so I said, okay, I just took a big step back. I We went to Australia to visit my husband's family for quite a long time. Like I think we were there almost a month and I really said, okay, let me just think about a problem I really care about. And actually 
every time I do that, and in the past, even when I was in consulting, it just always came up that that I realized I have this obsession with money. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> not how I mean it. More as in, like, ever since I was a little girl, I would see how in the Netherlands, like, everyone had debit cards for as long as I can remember. Everyone, you know, mainly spent money cashless. I got a debit card, like, as soon as I was 12 or 13. Um, and we would go to the Philippines, and it was just so different. There was only cash. Every morning, my grandmother would go to the bank and get the bills in the denomination she needed. I remember just being really intrigued by that always. So that was ever since I was little and that seed had always been there. But I also grew up with one of my aunts, my Philippine aunt is a migrant worker and she, an OFW, and she has lived outside the Philippines most of her life and she sends home everything she earns. So for context, she paid an average of 8%. That is actually one twelfth. So it meant a year of living and working abroad. She's sending, working one month just to send home what she earned. And so... I just like sort of kept coming back to this idea of payments, why it's so vastly different, why, right? And, and I mean, I'm not <laughs> not inventing this here, financial inclusion, financial exclusion, those concepts have existed for a while. But it's also why then my second semester, I started exploring and saying, well, what if, what exists out there, right? I'm sure there's like a role of the World Bank or anywhere else or an existing organization in the Philippines I can join and join their efforts. And they're clearly obviously trying to solve it. And what I really discovered in that is that no one was actually solving it all the way from the migrant worker abroad, which for the Philippines, they send home 35 billion a year. That's 10% of the country's GDP. So 10% of the country's economy relies on these funds. That's a relatively separately provided for a segment. Like there's remittance companies that just focus on that. And no one was really connecting it in a solution where you connect the migrant worker to be able to send money home much cheaper, much quicker. And that then the receiver also somehow gets better access to financial services. Because what I would see with my auntie is her relatives back home weren't really improving, unfortunately, in household economics, because they were still unbanked for decades. So then I decided, okay, I think I'm going to start with something myself. I did that. I applied for like a whole bunch of different accelerators and programs and was rejected from all of them. (laughs) Welcome to startup world. But Harvard was really, really supportive. So I just kept going. And I was like, well, it just means I have to get better at telling this story because just like how I'm talking now, I just had a random long rant without much structure with, you know, like what exactly is your solution? How are you, how are you doing this? How big is the market? Like all these things that I had all researched and thought about, but not really written out in a nice clean deck as our consulting colleagues would have loved. So I got better at that. And then I got into the Cheng Fellowship at Harvard, which is for social entrepreneurs. And that was sort of, it comes with a $30,000 grant. It's a one-year program for the second year. So I said, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build this venture. And I'm still aware how early I was in developing this company. So the first summer, went to the Philippines, did more on the ground research. But knowing I had at least the Chang Fellowship, like I have $30,000 to give it as much as I can. And it went from there. That's amazing. I want to come back to the point on grant funding a little bit later, but I also wanted to say that I share your love of money. Um, <laughs> not in that way, but um, no, I am. I'm actually going to Kuala Lumpur with my husband this weekend. And the f- thing I'm most excited to see is the Bank Nagara Money Museum. I've been before. I've spent many hours there because I think it's so cool. It's all about the history of money, but it's fascinating, right? It's money moves the world. And your angle with Tang on it is literally moving it across the world. So let's talk more about that. I recently saw Tang referred to as the Filipino Venmo. So let's just start. Like, what is Tang? What does it do? And how is it sort of different from some of the other remittance payments companies that exist today? Yes. 
So Tang itself stands for transacting Go. When you put Tang app, like Tang and the word Tang together with app, it looks like it says Tang app, but in Filipino, it's very close to the word Tang app, which means to receive. So that's a little like pun that we have because obviously we're starting with the Philippines, that's our beachhead, but the transacting Go idea that Tang you is applicable all around the world. Tang is an international peer-to-peer mobile payment app. So basically what that means is you can download the app in the US, you can look for the username of whomever you want to send money to if they've also downloaded it in the Philippines, and then you can send them money. We have multiple products live on the app. You can then send yourself money as well. So we've often heard people who say, oh, I'm flying home to the Philippines, but you have the best exchange rates and the lowest fees instead of me doing a bank transfer. Can I send it to my own Filipino bank account? So you can do that on Tang app in your own account. And we also have that you can buy prepaid phone credit or in the Philippines, it's called phone load, which is, you know, as most people don't have a monthly cell phone subscription, they buy as you need it. So, you know, buy it as you go on airtime and data. So we have a few products live and what Tang really focuses on and what sets us apart is one, we're definitely focusing on, you know, being competitive on the best rates out there. We charge a 3% flat fee. The second thing is we have live exchange rates, so there are no hidden fees. As in, the exchange rate updates live in the app. If you know you go in at one point, you go in later, that the exchange rate will probably vary because it's truly pegged and updated based on the best mid-market rates. So that means you get the best exchange rates in the market available to customers. And it arrives quickly. It's super simple. But I think one of the other big things is if you look at the way payments are done today, both internationally and domestically, especially between people. So we call it peer-to-peer. You have other remittance companies. So let's say like a Western Union, MoneyGram, there are also like, I'd say, you know, a sort of newer generation of these like Remitly, Zoom with an X, TransferWise, they rebranded to Wise. And then on the domestic peer-to-peer payment side, you have companies there, we call them e-wallets. So like a Venmo, US, Cash App in the US, or in the Philippines, you also have some and they're called Gcash, Maya are probably some of the biggest ones. So like you already see, there is a little bit this this disaggregation in these categories, right? So what we noticed is one, basically Tang App is almost connecting like a remitly to a Venmo and one app. So basically the idea of imagine you left the US and you can keep using Venmo. That's not the case today, by the way. The domestic e-wallets are very much, it's regulatory driven. You, you tend to be kind of stuck in the geography that you're in. And also strategy wise, it's a completely different product to send money internationally. I mean, I say that, but the whole idea and hypothesis behind Tang App is we don't think it is. We think that sending money peer to peer, whether you and I are in the same country in retail or whether you're now back in Singapore and I'm in New York, or if I were to send money to you now, like why should that be any different? Why can't I send? So with Tang App, one on how we differentiate is the fact that remittances today, because it's a very cumbersome, usually cash process, and remittances is the word for international money sending. With us, you can send as little as five bucks on Tang App. So that market as such doesn't really exist today. The fact that you could, especially from the US to the Philippines, download an app, it'll cost you 3%. So whether you send five bucks or 500. And in that, we're kind of building the market because the example is when Venmo started, right? Before they existed and someone had asked you, how often do you pay someone back $10? You would be like, probably never. I mean, I'm not gonna, I don't have the cash. I don't, I'm not gonna write a check for someone, right? Like I'll just get the next lunch or I'll get the next drink. And 
But now what you see on Venmo is it's very normal. You go out for lunch, you front at the 50 bucks and you just request 10 from everyone. Like requesting 10 bucks is completely fine. And a lot of transactions on Venmo are microtransactions. So it's sort of similarly with us, the market just doesn't fully exist for that because the behavior has been so different. And another thing I want to add to that, one big difference is even though there are a lot of innovations on sort of digital versions and improved versions of a Western Union, If you look at the pyramid on, there's this theory called bottom of the pyramid, where the majority of volume in anything, in food and amount of people, money flow happens at the bottom of a pyramid, um, especially in emerging markets. But these are folks who mainly live from indeed, you know, a few dollars a day, and they kind of live from getting that few dollars cash and spending it all the time. Western Union has done so well because they truly cater to that. And they focused on the receiver being the bottom of the pyramid in countries like the Philippines. And the biggest issue is they only can live off of cash. The infrastructure wasn't there. Western Union is over 100 years old. And so they had the Bronx network where everyone can just access this cash. Now, these incumbent, these new players on like Remitly, et cetera, can be argued that they're actually focusing still a little bit more towards the middle or top of the pyramid because especially for instance of WISE, they, you initially needed to have a bank account as a receiver. The idea that you behind a browser, behind a computer, right? Like that also implies that the sender is at a certain level. Now with the way that smartphone penetration is taken up a lot, especially in emerging markets, uh, at TangUp, we see the opportunity that we are truly building one, this peer-to-peer payment app for the bottom of the pyramid where it is much more feasible from like just the tech hardware availability, what people have, and then also adding in the small amounts, which much more caters to the receiver as well as the sender than just, you know, focusing on sending a thousand dollars a day, but it's still easier to do a high amount, even if you're doing it behind a computer once a month. Those are just a few things. And I could probably keep talking more about this in our vision, but I'll pause there. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. I think that's a really good overview. I mean, as you said, I think it's the the international payments remittance market and then, of course, domestic payment markets are huge. But I think it's a really interesting distinction you drew between, you know, there's the international money transfer companies and there's the domestic money transfer companies. And it's a little bit surprising when you put it like that, that nobody else has thought about making them part of the same thing. But I wonder if that's because people aren't focusing on a segment of workers that would actually do that, right? You know, Venmo is very focused on peer-to-peer payments within a country, whereas like you know, the international remittance people, they're focused on companies making, you know, transactions overseas. It's sort of, it's very kind of broad, broad strokes when you think about the customer base. But something that, you know, I really like about Tang App is that you started with the customer in mind and the customer is very specific here. It's overseas Filipino workers, OFWs. And as you said, every year, or I guess last year, 35 billion was sent back to the Philippines from all over the world. And it's not like it's just coming from the U.S. It's also coming, (laughs) you know, from Singapore, where I am, or from like Saudi Arabia, from Europe, UK, Canada, Taiwan, wherever. All these funds come from all over the world back to the Philippines. So there's clearly like a need for something cross-border, but you've also identified this need to have payments, you know, within the country. Can you talk a little bit more around like the OFWs and like how, you know, really getting to know this market has shaped multiple products that you're offering? In doing this research, actually, when we went on the ground and I will talk about OFWs, the first thing that I came to learn is that we learned the most about OFWs by being on the ground and talking to the receivers. And we realized a lot that also the sending behavior from an OFW depends on how the receiver needs the funds and how they can access it. And so 
one of the big light bulb moments was sitting in a living room in a rural area in the Philippines and talking to Filipinos who received, like relatives who received money from OFWs abroad. And they said, well, it's because they rely on the funds. And today they've only, none of them have bank accounts. They always access it cash. And I remember asking, well, what if it was via an app? I can see you all have smartphones. And they said, well, of course, we're a little bit worried sometimes about scams and, and would we trust it? Um, and I was like, okay, so so you wouldn't use that, right? This was before we even built Tang App, so you wouldn't trust it. And, and I also, at the time, was very allergic to any startup that had a solution as an app. <laughs> so I was very keen to be like, no, tell me what else you need, right? And, and then they were like, no, we would do it. It's easy. I was like, but you just told me all these trust and credibility things, right? Like, what, tell me more. And they said, well... First of all, if it's, let's say my sister abroad says, I'm going to now send it to you on, on an app and I'll, you know, you will be able to access the funds and that's how I'm doing it. I would do it one because I trust her. And even if I don't know anything about financial systems or banking, she does. And so if she's doing it that way, sure. And two, we really need the funds. So I, I don't have too much power in saying, oh, no, no, I don't want to receive the money that way. Right. So I think that was sort of a big aha moment where we realized that, yes, it's very important for us to understand the sender. But I think where a lot of remittance companies also lack is, is in really understanding the receiver. It makes sense because, you know, most remittance companies just go for like the global corridors, right? And we're doing a bit more of a deep dive going across horizontally, where we're linking remittances all the way to last mile daily payments, that which will eventually be available on TangApp, which means you can pay for your bills on TangApp. You can also pay peer-to-peer -peer or pay in store with TangApp in the Philippines. So that was a big in insight. And then we took that understanding to say, so this is why we also describe TangApp as we're the international payment app for the one and a half billion unbanked globally, because it was this realization of one, we can give a cheaper option to migrant workers to send money home, but that's just the first step. That's the first phase. And then you actually get app uptake and app usage and financial services, the digital financial services usage among the unbanked because you have these relatives doing all this education and marketing work for us. I mean, they they already have a natural position to tell their relatives back home, no, 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 no this is what you're going to use from now on. So that's a, a little bit of a big oversimplification, but I think that what really brought us into understanding actually the sender was doing the on the ground research and talking in the field to a bunch of the receivers. Because I think that's the influence that is sometimes a little bit more hidden. And all you see on paper is somebody from the U.S. is a migrant worker sending money home. And they send 500 bucks a month home. And like in understanding that, we also realize that there's a lot, there's not much control. Because when we also ask, how does it actually work? And then the relative would say, well, I generally get 500 a month. But sometimes I would say, I need money for X, Y, and Z. And that could be anything from like our mother's medicine, your, my, my son or your nephew's tuition. And this and this. And then the relative abroad sends it, other things come up and the money's gone much quicker than expected. And so, but because it's so cumbersome to send money, they only do big chunks at a time. And now it's hanging up what we're starting to see is this type of customer who normally sends 500 a month is actually sending like 50 bucks two or three times a week and is like understanding there can be much more control and say, okay, so our mother medicine, that has to happen now. I'm sending you 50 right now, right? When do you have to pay your nephew's tuition? Okay, I'll send you 75 next week. Like, and I think that's what is really interesting and was our, our hypothesis is like understanding both sides will lead to a much better built product. And so far it's been validated with us. That's really fascinating, Rebecca. I think I remember one of the early iterations of the product was like actually sending money to top up telco data. Mm -hmm. And like, I think you guys identified that as like a really big, important use case. And I always thought like, wow, that's like, that's so smart. Like you may not even, especially, you know, you don't have a license or something. 
it's easy to say, oh, let me top up your phone credits rather than let me send you cash because it's kind of the same thing. If you use phone credits as cash, effectively just finding those like important use cases where people would be sending things cross border and then also like within within the same market is really key to that success. That's really interesting. I do think cross border payment landscape, I think that's what TangApp kind of conquered first. And now you're getting into more of like the peer-to-peer payment space locally. But like what happens like if I'm a user of TangApp, if I'm a receiver, I receive it from, you know, my sister overseas, I receive cash in my Tang app, then what do I do with it? I mean, can I pay other, I can pay other people domestically. I can cash it out. Like what do I do with my Tang app money once it's in my wallet? Yeah. So on the Philippine side, so the idea is eventually that with Tang app, you'll be able to pay peer to peer with it in the Philippines or pay for your utility bills, order fast food on it. Your needs at the time. So however, for now it takes time to build this product, right? So in the two and a half years, we've accomplished a lot. The fact that we have launched and have a license and proved for the Philippine remittances license as well, like it's we've moved quite quickly. And the fact this is very complex to actually build, like on the front end, it looks nice and you just build an app that's not necessarily too difficult, but all the integrations on the back end to make sure that you can actually move the funds um, and that the data communication as well is, is all proper. And so today, when you send money from the US to the Philippines, you can either in the Philippines link your Philippine bank account if you have one. And then it arrives directly into your Filipino bank account, or you can link your local e-wallet. So we've focused on a bit of a go-to-market hack where we've integrated with all the e-wallets in the Philippines. For those, which is fantastic and in emerging markets, you're seeing this a lot, they don't need a bank account to be able to have an e-wallet. So the unbanked are sort of going directly to having these e-wallets and they have a vast cash out agent network system or already with some merchants that you can pay. So basically it means that your money arrives directly in your local e-wallet in the Philippines. Eventually TangApp will be able to offer that ourselves. But like I said, it's a bit complex to build. It requires other licenses. So that's our sort of quick hack now to make sure indeed that the unbanked have access to TangApp because that is our whole value proposition, right? And I think that Working with the ecosystem is is also super important. And I think that's where, right, like I think a lot of people look at in general in fintech where, oh, this is so crowded and payments are so crowded and there's so many competitors. But I think what people don't see a lot behind the scenes is personally, I think some of the better fintechs are also always talking to everybody because you always have to see like, and most of the time there's more partnership opportunities than than that you're really fighting against each other for the same customer. And the market is huge, right? Like 35 billion just for the Philippines. Like globally, it's 590 billion or so sent remittances like around the world. And that doesn't even include like domestic peer-to-peer value, like peer-to-peer transaction volume, right? So yes, there are a lot of people working to solve this problem. But I think for us and and interestingly, like we also don't really meet resistance from the local e-wallets to work with us. Like they want, you know, as much volume and flow as well as they can get. So that's the the solution for today. And the product that we offer is that we call it e-wallet cash out so that you can link your local e-wallet. You don't need a bank account and then get your funds that way. It's great. And it's a great point on partnerships. We don't necessarily need to see all of these international or local competitors as competitors. We could see them as potential partners. I have one more kind of question around the business model. It's basically, I mean, just kind of zooming out to the remittance landscape. It still seems, you know, outside of Tang app, obviously, it still seems really hard to send money across borders. And it's like so damn expensive. And it seems like one of the things that Tang app has been able to do is to actually lower that transaction fee significantly. So maybe one, why is it still so expensive to send money overseas through some of these traditional routes? And, you know, how has Tang, um, without giving too much away, but 
how has Tangout been able to to overcome that and offer really much more reasonable rates to people who, as you said, are at the base of the pyramid and can't necessarily afford to be spending one month of their salary on transaction fees? How has Tang been able to crack that? It's interesting because with Western Union and their average fee being around 8%, and now obviously it varies per corridor and sometimes how you send it and how much money you send, but our margin is actually not not that different. So our profit margin is a few percent. We just transfer and that's the same at Western Union. It's just that when you use cash, when you have a big agent network, that costs a lot of money. That's a very high overhead cost for a company. Us being fully digital as an app, and yes, we work with different API providers, There are certainly fees related to that, but they are much more reasonable, partly because one, there are a lot of people building similar solutions. So they also have to be interesting and competitive in what they offer us. So one is definitely the fact that we are fully digital, right? Having said that, that means like, okay, great, but there are other folks who are also building digital, like aren't, isn't it all just a crunch down on fees? And Yes, it is. And I think that's where TangApp has an interesting advantage, where normally with remittances, to put it very crudely, right? if you're lowering your fees, even if you are fully digital focused, you can be a lot cheaper than some of the cash focused remittance companies. Let's say you are lowering your fees from the US to the Philippines because you've noticed that, oh, it's others are lowering their fees. Let's go down to you know 2.9%. The very simple reality is that that means you just as a remittance company means you have to make up for that in a different corridor. Like at a certain point, right? If let's say we're all assuming that, you know, all tech companies like care about profitability and um, <laughs> uh, assumption. Market, yeah, yeah. Market <laughs> is certainly teaching us that lesson now, I think. So we would be wise to listen. But let's say, right, like you're not going to sacrifice on profitability or at least not that much. At a certain point, that's all you can do is like, move it down somewhere, you'll have to move it up somewhere else, or eventually you'll have to comfort it in a different way, et cetera, et cetera, because your your operating structure probably is, is limited to a certain extent. With TagApp, the interesting difference we have is by eventually offering other features domestically, like bill pay and other services, is those are services where companies are willing to pay more to be able to offer that on TagApp. So a lot of utility companies today, most are still paid people pay their bills in cash. You go somewhere and you line up and you pay in cash. Now that is extremely expensive for a utility company to be able to have to handle that, to have to have a person everywhere, et cetera. And so they're willing to pay a few percent or more than what the fees are on remittances. So we have a little bit more of an interesting portfolio where like if we were to lower our fees, and that actually is within our plans and our forecast, where if we lower our fees on remittances, we have other places where we can very feasibly and reasonably comp for that. One other example is, for instance, um, I was just talking to actually one of our investors who has a big company and payroll is a headache. And most people in the Philippines take immediately their payroll out in cash and that costs them a high percentage. And so some employers are sometimes willing to pay a bit more of a percentage to use a digital version like TagApp just so that their employees aren't paying these extra fees to be able to access the cash. So there's a lot of interesting opportunities where we can sort of charge the fees to merchants and to other other type of partners on TangApp domestically. I think the way the way to look at that also, right, is kind of the idea of like when banks came about and obviously using an ATM is actually not free. It costs the bank money for you to use an ATM. Now, most banks will have figured out a way to say, okay, you bank with Bank of America, using our ATMs is free. But the way we comp that is if you aren't a Bank of America customer, we're going to charge you three bucks whenever you use our ATM, et cetera, right? And so... It's sort of this, this is kind of the game you're also seeing where remittances is becoming a little bit cheaper over time as more digital 
players come out. But at a certain point, you do hit a threshold on what you can truly do. With Tang App, what we're saying is we can actually extend that threshold and maybe even get remittances down to zero because we have a lot of other products where we can probably make more money and balance it out that way. That's really exciting, Rebecca. Thank you for that that explanation. So, Rick, you've made a very compelling business case for Tang App, and you're a, clearly a very smart and accomplished founder. It seems like, you know, switching gears a little bit, it would be pretty easy to raise money. Let's talk <laughs> about that. Let's talk about fundraising. I want to spend kind of our last segment talking about this. I know it's something that's close to our hearts. But maybe just to start, can you tell us a little bit about what your fundraising journey has been like? Yeah. When we started, I was finishing up my master's at the Harvard Kennedy School and had joined a bunch of startup competitions as well. Won those. So leaving and graduating Harvard and incorporating Tang App, we, I already left Harvard with, yeah, I think it was a few over 100,000 or so in grants which is non-dilutive funding. What that means is it's kind of truly free money. It took a lot of work. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just line up here and pick it up. Um, I mean, it was a lot of work to win those and to achieve that, but that was really like a great kickoff. And yeah, at least from a mental perspective on what we needed, I had to hire an engineering team member and pay myself a little bit. And so that was a great start. And then we probably could have taken that money to build our first pilot product, but because it was the pandemic and following these competitions, we had a lot of angel investor interest. So I decided to take on a little bit more money at the time. So took on a bit more of what I called a pre-seed part one. Um, So I specifically split up our pre-seed round in two parts. I said pre-seed part one took on like another 170K from a couple angels. And so at that time we were a little under 400K and said, okay, let's just have this as a buffer because of the pandemic. We really don't know what the world and the markets are going to look like. Then built our MVP, which indeed was for this prepaid phone credit top up. And that was very successful. And then off of that raised the pre-seed part two. And there we raised about 1.2, a little bit more than that from angel investors. Raising from angels is certainly very specific. That was a choice I made. I just felt we weren't ready for venture capital or like big institutional funding yet. Because we were in the very early days, despite a successful pilot, right? Like the vision was sending money. We That is takes a lot to build. And so there's a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot you're still experimenting on. And then even when you've built it, like, can you get customers, right? So there's still there's a whole lot more to do. And angels really match that better. Where for us in the phase we were looking at, I have a solid team. I have a very strong vision. And, and you know, everything I told you today that hasn't necessarily changed that much. We've pivoted on some small features and things. We definitely pivoted at the time to focus on the phone credit top up first, but like this vision of sending money should be as easy as texting, that actually hasn't changed that much. And I found a bunch of fantastic angel investors that were very much believed in that vision as well and believed in me and the team. So went on into close around in 2021. So we, at that point, raised about one and a half million from grants and angels, built the product, got a license in the final stage of the next license and built a product, launched it, and it's really just sort of skyrocketed. So seeing crazy growth this year, and we then went into our second raise, which is our seed round now. So we're raising two and a half million and yeah, closing it soon, which is very exciting. And this time around, though, is very conscientious on we need to have institutional investors. So need to focus on VCs, knowing what our growth goals are, milestones. I need a lot more professional help and understanding sort of how do we get there? What should we be focusing on? What team members should I be hiring, et cetera? Raising from VCs. So if I backtrack a little bit, I've lived in many different 
countries and cultures and communities. And I've been very lucky that I've not very often felt truly out of place. And I think I can probably count on one hand when I've really felt like, oh gosh, you're different because your background is different, your skin color is different, etc. Being a female Filipino founder in fintech is like by far the top position and where I've truly felt like an oddball, not because I acted that way, but because the space has really made me feel that way. I think generally finance still today, you know, for the financial sector is predominantly white men, uh, a little bit older white men than our age, uh, <laughs> Rita. But then also fintech, interestingly, also is, which makes sense, I suppose, in a way, because it's still very, it's, yeah, I guess it's just marrying finance and tech. And both of those today are still predominantly male and unfortunately it's predominantly white male, especially in the US. And so, yeah, that was a bit of a sad and disappointing realization. I'd also done projects in consulting in oil and gas, like you have in other sectors. And honestly, it wasn't nearly as tough as this was. And when I say tough, I mean, encountered a lot of sexism, a lot of bias. There's this fantastic TED Talk by Dana Kanz, The Real Reason Why Female Entrepreneurs Raise Less Money. It's a 15-minute masterclass where she's done this research to explain that and found that most female founders get questions that are they're called preventive questions or basically downward and male founders get promotion questions and to give an example it means like i get a lot of questions on how are you going to prevent a competitor from like swallowing you up or building the same thing and men will get a question on how are you going to capture the rest of the market or you know how are you going to grow this internationally like it's and so i think it's one of those concepts where once you see it, you can't unsee it. And going into this fundraise, 90% or more of the questions I got from VC investors were these preventive downward questions. And then you realize like how, like the stark reality of, and most aren't aware of this bias, right? And so how do you, in this power position, right, where I want money and I know what I've done is great. And I know that our traction, like I know I outperform a lot of other peer mill founders. How do you handle that, right? And how, so... I think it's been a lot of glasses of wine with friends like you, <laughs> Rita. Yeah. My husband certainly has been a big support. I've also actually enlisted a coach recently, but because it's tough, you're not going to change the system immediately. And what it simply does come down to is, yeah, the numbers also show it, right? 2% of venture capital funding or less than that goes to female founders. Still today, really appalling numbers. Living that and seeing what that actually means it just means like for, you know, maybe most male founders at times, potentially this market's a little bit different, but you wouldn't have to meet with like 30 VCs to get a million dollars. For me, that number is like 70 to 100. So it's just really like, yeah, I mean, one of our amazing investors is Visible Hands, a VC in Boston, and they focus on founders from underrepresented communities. And the numbers they shared are that they're seeing with their founders is like around 60, 70 per million dollars, which is a lot better than the market for minority founders, partly because of their help. But yeah, it's tough. And I've just sort of accepted that I am going to have to do a lot more work on unfair reasons. But at the same time, I'm also focusing on a lot of positivity where 2% of VC funding, whatever, it's not my reality, right? I on a lot of things, you and I have gone for things where the odds are against us. Like not many people get into consulting, not many people get into Harvard, et cetera, et cetera, right? So yes, those numbers are, and it is a problem and I'm not excusing that, but I think more from a personal level, I've also had to like shift my mindset and say, 
it doesn't matter. It's not my reality. I'm building this company. I will raise the VC funding that I need. And Tang App is just going onward and upward. And even whether I want to or not, we're doing fantastic. And it's because I have an epic team. But so it's almost like even if I, you know, wanted to sit down with the slumps and be like, oh, no, like it's undeniable how well we're doing. So I just have to keep at it and not let that bias and the, the way the ecosystem is today. Like I already know by being a female founder of color, I am already changing the system. So also just trying to focus on the positives, but friends and, you know, angel investors and people like you and Rita make all the difference. Thanks, Rebecca. And thank you for sharing that journey. I think rare that we get to hear like a very like raw version of what the funding journey is like, especially for someone like you, a woman, a woman of color who's trying to fundraise in a really tough market, particularly for me as a woman working in fintech for, you know, most of my career now. I definitely understand where it comes from. I think it's also, I mean, I have to plug this. I wasn't going to plug the syndicate, <laughs> but now I have to because you've said it. So I, I mean, I recently started an angel investing syndicate focused on women that's called Vindicate. And it's actually just for this reason, right? Well, it's for this reason that women founders tend to get like less funding than male-led companies. Sorry, it's not tend to, it, like the numbers are stark. 2% of VC funding, as you said, goes to women-led startups. But on the flip side, there's also plenty of studies done that women-led companies outperform male-led companies significantly. And so I actually yeah. think there's like a pretty big arbitrage opportunity here. <laughs> um, <laughs> everybody should really be investing in women-led startups um, for that reason. Uh, but that's why we started this syndicate, you know, me along with my Nat. And we're actually very happy to be participating in Tang App's seed round. So thank Woo-hoo! you. <laughs> our very, it's our first investment, actually. So I should say there's probably a teeny bit of bias in this episode. But I also really appreciate what you said about, you know, the TED Talk, where it sort of exposes the different ways that men and women founders get treated. Um, it was actually, I think about it a lot when I'm prepping podcast questions now. If I've got guests, I mean, whoever my guests are, I have to be a little bit more conscious of like, what kind of questions am I asking? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to be a self-hating woman, <laughs> but I don't want to give, you know, any sort of unfair advantage or disadvantage to anyone who's just trying to tell their story. So I find it really valuable and I'll definitely link it in the show notes. I did also want to comment on the point around starting off with grant funding, because this isn't really a a route that I hear a lot a lot of startups taking. I feel like a lot of people go directly to angels and then VCs, but kind of skip this really kind of magical resource, which is grant funding, which obviously it, it can often come with like no strings attached, which is great. Love to hear a little bit more about that experience. And then also contrast it with maybe the VCs that you're talking to for your seed round. Because you know, I think for someone like you who has like a real impact mission, to find investors that are really aligned with your vision for the future could be hard. You can get that from grants, right? But it might be harder to get that from investors. And so, you know, as you're closing your seed round, I guess there's like a broader question here is like, can high growth focused VCs be aligned to a mission? And do you feel pressure from investors now that you're in like later stages of funding to focus more on growth and the impact that you originally started with? Hmm. So grants is is an interesting point as well. I will very, very much caveat with what I said about grants. And mostly, we got them mostly through the Harvard ecosystem. We did also get one from Acumen and Rockefeller, as well as Mass Challenge. So it can be very difficult to get them. 
And I also don't want to diminish that. There are fantastic grants out there, but I have also heard, you know, the dark side of it where, you know, it's a year of work in applying for them and this whole process. And then after that, they have all these stipulations that they want you to adhere to and you're spending a lot of time reporting on it. And that's probably because, you know, the grant has been set aside and they have this specific reporting duty from whomever the grant organization is to whomever gave them the funds for that. Or if it's from a governmental agency, like then there's a duty to, for example, the American people, all right? Like, well, how is this being spent and what is happening here? So I will say be cautious with that and be aware. And the best way to find out is also to find people who got that grant and like what their take is on it, what the program is, not to dwell on it too much. But I will also say that a lot of grants tend to come with some kind of program or like, oh, here's um, like if it's a competition, even if there's just like one sort of pitch moment or multiple rounds, you're still preparing for that a lot. And there tends to be like mentoring resources offered, et cetera. Some will come with, okay, you can do this program with us for 10 weeks. And then at the end of it, you have a chance to win a grant and et cetera. And I will also say, which I also did not know until I started this, is especially as a female founder of color, minority founders tend to be, that is also not the right word, by the way, because we are not the minority, but just for like simplicity's sake, to keep it at that, tend to be, over mentored and underfunded. So you'll see this a lot where a lot of VCs are also starting programs and saying, Hey, I'm investing in, you know, five women of color by March, like reach out to me. And then you do. And then they say, yep, it's this 12 week accelerator, come and apply. And then, yeah, you do get, if you get in, you get a hundred K, et cetera, et cetera. And you're sort of like, why can't I just get the hundred K? Like, why do I need you to teach me more? Um, and it's just this big trend you see. So I do also want to caveat it with, you know, grants can be really great. And I definitely think like do the homework and and figure out, is this worth the time and effort? You can also really grow and learn from them, right? So some of these startup competitions, like I think I went over my pitch 50 times. And I think it's also why I've become quite crisp and clean in telling the story and telling, talking about like what the problem exactly is and how we're tackling it. So that's what I'll say about grants. They are obviously, once you get them, are fantastic because the non-dilutive funding is great. At a certain point, though, because they take so much effort, we also decide to move away from them. So for this seed round, I'm not personally applying for or tying up isn't anymore for other grants. If, you know, an opportunity arises where I think it could be worthwhile, so maybe you still go for it or it's not that much effort, sure. But also the checks don't tend to become like a million dollars, right? You're talking about a few 10K, if you're lucky, a few 100K, or if, if you know there's great programs out there. And then the contrast with, especially on Indeed, what was, what did really resonate is our social impact focus for grants. You're absolutely right there. I think that's something that a lot of grants do care about and they tend to have to have an impact focus. So, so that was like a match made in heaven for us and really resonated. And I think is partly why we won so many of these. So And then with VCs, I think the world is changing a little bit where it's undeniable that you can no longer just focus on growth and profit. And that does matter. And we're not ignoring business here. But one of our investors, Goodwater, they also they're the largest consumer tech venture capital firm in the world, big name in the in the startup scene. And they also say that they focus on on tech for good in a way like there has to be some kind of impact or positive element about what you're building to the point where I did ask them, like, what exactly does that mean? And they said, well, in fintech, you know, we we see a lot of solutions come across and we have actually walked away from some extremely high growth, interesting opportunities that are just like smashing the numbers and what you would want to see as a VC. And I'm sure they'll get really big because we thought their product at a certain point could lead to a lot of unintended consequences or do more harm than good. And so 
I think that that's definitely not, this is not necessarily the, the rule, potentially still the exception, but I'd like to say that a lot of the investors that we spoke to are, are at least at the very minimum aware of this balance, right? There are so many problems in the world that we can't avoid, like, and that you see happening and, you know, food shortage and inflation and energy prices, et cetera, et cetera, like, right? Like climate change, financial inclusion, exclusion, like I think it's headed in the right trend, but I wouldn't say it's like the norm yet. And so on that note, what we just have to do as a company, what we do do is make sure that we are hitting all our markers. We're growing quickly. You know, we're having, we're an interesting company to invest in as a business perspective and internally, right? It's not fully a science yet. It's a little bit more an art on how we marry our focus on impact to all our business goals. And so for us, what we say is this is a North Star. Like we're always pulled back to this North Star. Of, are we doing better? And are we in essence helping improve the lives of migrant workers as well as the unbanked? And that goes down to all the way business decisions, right? We were talking about a marketing promo code and it just seemed a little bit deceitful and there was nothing illegal about it. We could have phrased it in that way, but it just felt like it would be taking advantage and people would definitely contribute the wrong way. And then pulling back up to like, are we really helping improve the lives and, and how does this affect? No, the answer was very simple. No, I don't think this is beneficial in that way. So again, for us also, not like a, a perfect science and how we're integrating the whole impact thing on business. But I do think that what we have started to notice is the company culture just matters. So if you have folks who don't give an F about <laughs> that stuff, then yeah, that's how you're going to become more and more just a pure growth for profit focused and your social mission will, will wither away. So I think that's where we're just starting one step at a time, building a company of team members that care about the same things and impact as well. And then the second thing is using it as our social mission. And then, yeah, just giving it a shot. <laughs> I'm not, I'm really not an expert at this. So talk to me again in a year, Rita. <laughs> or, or in definitely. We'll definitely have to do that, Rebecca. Thank you. I think that's a good note to end on. What a good North Star to be focused on. This has been you know, a really wonderful conversation. I'm always so inspired by you and your work and a million new things for me every time we talk. So thank you for joining me on the show. This has been a great, great show today. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me, Marisa. It's always fun to chat with you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.